I have a title for this message, and I really struggled with this one, but the title would be Plan for Families. It's the plan for families. And part of the reason why I felt to talk about this was that it's just something that I feel like God's highlighting, homes and families. I am very sympathetic. I have my own home and I have my own family, and it's, it's really hard. If you can be very objective and honest about it, you could say that the world makes a lot less sense today than it did in years past. And I'm not even talking about a long period of time. It just makes a lot less sense. And I preached a couple of weeks ago, and there was a little segment that I wanted to hone in on because it's something that God put on my heart. And I made this statement going through Genesis about God's plan. And his plan was family. And I just made a note that God was talking about family before he ever talked about the church. This is in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so I'm going to start because this is where we want to go. I, I get to, to preach for a couple of weeks so I can take my time. But this is where I want to go. But I'm not necessarily going to get, be able to get there today. But it's a little bit of the heart of what I feel is God's perspective. And they have it in the back. And I'm going to read it. It's just a sentence that I picked up that speaks exactly to that point, which is, God showed his keen interest in families by forming the home before he made the church. He wants the same wonderful unity and that recognition of himself, which people expect to feel only in the church, to also be in the home. That's God's perspective of homes and families. And Lord willing, I want to get to that, but that's the heart of, of what I'm marching towards. And you know that one of the themes that I've been feeling and just noticing as you've watched things unfold in our midst is this notion of turning the hearts of the children to the parents and turning the hearts of the parents to the children. That came up over a couple of weeks' time. And I wrote this in my journal. I don't journal very much, by the way, so it's kind of a rare event. But in March, I wrote, this thought came to me, which is, you know, because Clayton's actually preached this, by the way, just out of Genesis 1.26, that God makes the man. And I wrote in my journal that, what is the enemy trying to undermine? Man. His dignity, his identity slash purpose, and his impact. That's what the enemy, and he's a game plan that I went over very quickly a couple of weeks ago, and that's what we want to do, do today. And, and these are some of the questions that I'm hoping to explore with you today. With that being said, how do we operate in this context? Knowing that there's active opposition to the very blueprint that God has put in his scriptures on display about homes and families. How do we operate in this context? And how should we even think about it? These are large questions. So we're going to start. If you wanted to open your Bibles, I would encourage you. But it's always nice when you can preach from the first three books of Genesis, touching them at some point. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And the, really the first part, which is, how is the enemy undermining man's dignity? Genesis 1, 26 then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
And this is such a broad issue that it's playing itself out in our culture. There was a book written in 1999 by Chuck Colson. It said, How Now Shall We Live? That was the title of the book. 1999, this is 23 years ago. We're approaching a generation since that time. And in this book, he talked about very broad and varied issues that were popping up across society, and it was getting to the issue of humanism, secular humanism. And that very topic and mindset, and it, as he put it in his book, it is a worldview issue. It's a worldview issue. Such a basic worldview issue implicated by this very verse that man was made in the very image of God. And it's been in play for generations now. And you see its impact throughout. And it's such a big thing, but I just want to touch on one very specific thing because I'm trying to give you an understanding of how do you even think about this? How does this actually apply to you in your home and your home family and your own thoughts? See, humanism, if, if you, it's good to always, I love words, by the way. Not because I like to speak a lot of words. I have a very limited number that I can do in a day because I'm a man. <laughs> but words are kind of important. Words have definitions. Words mean things. Words are, in a sense, those are my weapons. That's how we communicate. And I'm not making a broad societal statement about whether you're communicating and engaging, engaging in discourse. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, for me, words are important. So if you were to look up the definition of humanism, Merriam-Webster, good place, these are the definitions. It's a doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interests or values. And especially, it says, a philosophy that usually rejects belief in a supernatural power and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. It's a definition, so there's a lot there, I know. But key to the very definition of humanism is that in a very layman's perspective of how you can categorize, what, is, what did they just say? Just take God out of the equation. Whoever man is, whoever you think man's purpose, identity, you know, being, just take man, God out of the equation and let man define it now. That's a very layman's way to think about it. And so I'm going to give you the most obvious example, which was indicated by the verse prior to verse 26 in Genesis, which is verse 25, and you have your Bibles open, and if you were to read verse 25, it talks about the beasts that God created before he made man. And there's one very notable distinction, and God said, after he talked about the beasts being created, he says, and it was good. But the notable distinction between the beasts of the field and man was that the beasts were not made in the image of God. Man was. Point of note, point of distinction, and really the crux of the matter. And see, humanism would reject the supernatural characteristic of man, that he was made in the image of God, and that means so much, which we could spend a whole series talking about. But there's something built into man that reflects God as a supernatural creator. I posit that 
the mere fact that you are called to worship in spirit and truth, and it's the spiritual aspect of you you are can now communicate and fellowship with God, that's something that you have that the animals will never have. That's what's been built into you. But humanism would reject that whole supernatural origin of who you are and part of who you are and say now man is no better than the animals. That somehow life as between an animal and a human being is equally as valuable or important. Humanism. I can make light of it in the sense that if I were to ask this question to push the point for you of is this really what our society is, in the sense, promoting, advocating, desiring that you adopt as part of your value system? Maybe. But in your personal opinion, just take outside of yourself now, okay? In your personal opinion, do people love pets more than they love people? Inner conflict, isn't it? It's rather an innocent question. And I'm saying, I'm not, I didn't ask that for you to judge yourself about, well, I have a pet, and you know, do I love pet more than people? No, no. I said, on balance, when you think of the people's viewpoint of value, do they seem to like pets more than people? That's the issue of humanism. You see, it is a worldview issue. It's a worldview issue. And there's a prevailing undercurrent in this spirit of the world that we are subject to. We're in, but not of the world, by the way. That this spirit, because it's in opposition to the very design and blueprint of God, starting with man himself, is that the spirit is seeking to dismantle a high view of human life. That's what it's doing. How does this work itself out? There is a movement, and, and when I say movement, by the way, don't think of it like a political movement. I'm just saying there is a movement as a culture to place a relative value on human life, not an absolute value relative value. What do I mean by that? I start out with the example of animals. You can s apply that same question, is the value of human life relative to the value of mother nature, of the environment? See, all of these relative value, in a sense, discussions are ongoing and are allowed to persist if the fundamental value of man is not absolute but relative. You can begin to now trade off what is good for the environment generally without owing to the absolute fundamental value of man and human life. And these discussions are ongoing and you see it playing out amongst your neighbors, government, organizations, everywhere. It's rampant. I'm not here to solve it. I'm here to explain to you that as it relates to this fundamental bedrock notion of man being created in the image of God, this is something 
that I would encourage you to hold before you for now. You get to critique every thought, every notion, every wind of proposition slash argument that gets presented to you and say, here, take it. Take it. The influence that you are being subjected to has been, has been ongoing for longer than a generation. And it's just something that you have to grapple with because its influence is pervasive. But that's where it starts, humanism. In this blueprint, as we continue on in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Wow, that's pretty controversial right there. Undermining man's identity and purpose. You know there's an attack on gender. This one is much more recent than humanism but it's the next leg in the chain, in the blueprint of what God established and desired to establish in homes and families that is now under attack. And I trust you can understand that I'm not trying to be overtly political in any way, because that's not the issue. So the issue of gender is on the table now, and you get to resolve this, how you feel about it. And I gave you the basis to believe in gender. And the more interesting question out of this is not that God created male and female, which goes to the actual issue that's on play right now, which is when God created an individual did he have a particular design on which gender it would be? Because that's really the issue now. I would posit yes. Why? Ephesians 2.10. You are his workmanship. You. His workmanship. That word is, the root of that word is where you get poem from, which is a masterpiece. There's nobody like you. That's you. And God had a vision for you even before you were born. And it's up to you if you were to decide that he knew whether you were to be male or female. For me, it's pretty easy to accept that absolutely. He had a design of who you were to be, gifts, talents, gender, all of it, in a package which is now his workmanship slash really a masterpiece created to do good works. That's you. So, there was a new word that created, as words are, I love words. I never really knew about this word, and nobody really knew about this word probably, you know, until the middle of the 2010s. I think around 2015, it was actually codified that the word cisgender was added to the dictionaries. And cisgender means a person whose gender identity corresponds with the sex the person had or was identified as having at birth. You could say that, in a sense, characterizes Genesis 127. And cisgender, if you were to look it up, cisgender represents an antonym of transgender, which just believes the opposite, that it's not really dependent upon the sex that you were born with. 
So we live in a complex world, I think you would agree. How do you navigate this? There's three words that have probably come into the vernacular that probably nobody really, or not many people, really thought about much other than the onset of COVID. The three words being sincere religious belief. Like, why would I really needed to know that? There's many people that have been struggling with this issue of vaccines and mandates, and one of the touchstones of whether you could get an exception, one of the exceptions outside of a medical exception was a religious exemption, which was a demonstration that it was a sincere religious belief. It's a strange world we have. You can have, to the degree that you believe what Genesis 1, 27, if you want to look at the context of Ephesians 2.10, you being his workmanship slash masterpiece, then for you to have a sincere religious belief that you just believe what the Bible says in Genesis 1.27, that God created gender. That would be my advocate. As an advocate for you, that would be my recommendation of how to proceed. It's an issue of belief. Now, I have to take a little bit of time to deconstruct this a little bit. Why am I encouraging you to base it on belief? Because that may, if somebody has an issue with you, just being very practical, and the overhang and the sort of covering over all this, when the Bible says that, you know, when Jesus sent out two by two, he says, I'm going to send you out amongst wolves. My encouragement to you is to be shrewd as a snake and innocent as a dove. I believe that. This is under this umbrella. The reason why belief is the call, your calling card, the reason why I'm advocating you to have a position of belief as a basis of what even you say is because if somebody has an issue with you on this issue, you're going to the end game now, which is that they are going to have an issue with what the Bible says, not your opinion. And that is a very important distinction that I want you to appreciate. Somebody that has a contrary opinion to yours, you can argue all day long, and they'll be upset at you because that's your opinion. But if the issue is one of belief and it's sincere, then their ultimate issue is going to be their issue with this, not you. I wish it wasn't like that, but that's the end game of where it's all going to go. The ultimate criticism of your belief system is going to center upon this, and this is going to be a shield for you because it's going to be one that's going to fall under this category of that's what I believe. It's my sincere religious belief. It might sound like I'm being somewhat overly prescriptive about it, but this is a minefield. And that's my opinion of what would be helpful to you. But now I'm going to tell you something that, remember when I say I love words? 
I really do. Now I'm going to tell you about the trap. And it's not a meme, by the way. There is a trap, and that trap relates to words. I told you that I believe it's helpful for you to have a position based upon belief. You might be tempted to say you're pro something. That is a trap. In this slide that's going to come up, and I'll explain what I mean by the trap of using the word pro. And it's well-meaning. Up here, it says the phrase pros and cons is an abbreviation of the Latin phrase pro et contra, which means for and against. And it has been used in the abbreviated form since the 16th century, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. I know you're thinking, did I get transported into some English class? If you are to, and so the trap that I'm referring to is a way that will be used against you based upon a play in words. There is, a, what is well known in Racker is this concept of pros and cons, pros and cons. What pros and cons is a synonym of is advantages and disadvantages. That's what pros and cons really means. But based upon this definition of this Latin term pro et contra, what it's basically saying is for and against. And if I was a lawyer, just kind of hypothesize, imagine if I was a lawyer now. <laughs> just, just hard to believe, I know. Imagine I was a lawyer. If I could put you in a position where you have a pro position, good luck trying to withstand my argument to paint you as against. And if I can paint you as against, the natural consequence is you're anti, which is a phobia. So the mere, and it's, it's a play on words, because the, the, the Latin term pro et contra is dealing with pros and cons, which relates to advantages and disadvantages, not whether you're for or against something. But the words for and against is the basic definition. So if you are positioning yourself to be pro something, I can relabel that and say now you're anti and have a phobia. It's a play on words. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. And if I had a choice of which side I want to argue, I would take that side easily. I know I'm going to win with that argument. Outside of true rational discourse, where it's something where it's an, oh, I don't know, argument that's heated, you're never going to convince somebody that being pro-something does not imply anti. You are not going to win. Because it's a play on words, and you will lose. I'm sorry about that but words mean something. And until you were in a position that you could finally explain the differences between what, how pro et contra deals with advantages and disadvantages and not anti, not gonna work. So save yourself a little bit of time, recognize the issue, but position yourself from the perspective of belief.
and why else would I want you to do anything other than to know what you believe? Yeah. Welcome to today. Moving on. I know that probably scrambled your brain a little bit. Scrambles my brain a little bit. But let's move on. The enemy attacks the dignity of man. The enemy is, the enemy is undermining your identity slash purpose. And the enemy we know is undermining marriage and family. So Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay. Here's the word for you that Josh alluded to. Some of you may not even know this word. The word is bifurcation. Maybe everybody knows that word. I hope so. Okay, bifurcation, all, me, all that means that there is a point in time in which you split into two branches. That's all it means. On the issue of marriage, can you just work with me here and accept this idea that by the, the concept of marriage has undergone bifurcation. It has happened. It's not going to change. And that bifurcation that I'm speaking of is... Marriage now has two branches. One branch is a biblical branch, and the other is a governmental branch. It's already happened. There, you could have probably found in instances of individual governance within nations that bifurcation had not happened, and the two were essentially coexistent and roughly equal. But that's not true anymore. It's happened. We've split. So the biblical branch recognizes, marriage is recognized in the throne room of heaven. In the governmental branch, marriage is recognized by tax officials. I hope you agree with me on this. In God's eyes, When somebody ordained by God prays for two people under Genesis 2.24 and joins them under God as a representative of God, that union is recognized in the throne room of heaven to the degree that Jesus, when he was talking about recounting all of this in Genesis, is saying, so what man, let no man separate what God has put together. It's recognized in the very throne room of heaven. And the officiant as a representative of God gets to be the one to, as representative of God, join. In the, that's one branch. In the governmental branch, I said somewhat cheekily, but it's still true, that it's really just something that's recognized by tax officials. In the governmental branch, marriage is no different from a certificate slash license. There's really no distinction. They could change the rules and have a marriage being between not two people, but one person and an inanimate object. Doesn't matter. It's no different from you getting a driver's, driver's license. 
you get a license so that you have certain privileges under the governmental construct. In the second branch called the governmental, that's what marriage is. Has no real meaning in anything other than with tax officials. What rights do you have with respect to income and taxes? Are you married filing jointly from the federal level, state level? There's really no difference. So, except, please, I'm not here to debate what we should or should not do with respect to how the courts interpreting legislative history in individual states and contexts of how they view marriage. That's it. This bifurcation has happened. And there are great people that would love to see it, in a sense, come back together. Maybe it will, but that's where we are. And my personal view on it is that I don't think of it as a marriage ceremony because that's like, what do you mean by that? Is it governmental marriage? Is it like the only way I, in my brain, the way I can think to talk about it is, so what did I do? Well, I officiated a Genesis 2.24 ceremony. It's not, I can't even say generically it's a marriage ceremony. It's Genesis 2.24. I hope I didn't break your boxes about what marriage represents, but hey, it's happened. I alluded to, I don't think I gave this to him, in, in Matthew 19, you know, Jesus summarized all of this, and he says, 19 verse 4, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, let not man separate. That's Jesus repeating Genesis. And then he goes on in Matthew 19 verse 13 and he says, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Other gospel accounts says he blessed them. After Jesus affirmed the very institution of or the framework and the blueprint of God, man being made in the image of God, male and female, he created them, that they would be joined together in marriage, Genesis 2.24, and the, the outcome of that, which was really the impact that we ought to have in Genesis, that talks about you know, going out, filling the earth, and subduing it. There's dominion aspects of that. And the account in, in Matthew chapter 19, it's about children children and Jesus so loved the children that he wanted nothing more to lay his hands on them and bless them I don't know what else could sum up Jesus' attitude to children and about the role of parents and families to facilitate his treasure which is children Proverbs has a verse that every parent could probably quote. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. 
and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That word train is dedicate. In all, there's only used, I think, in four or five times, you know, in the Bible. And only once is it dealing with people. In every other instance, it was with an inanimate object, such as a house or a temple. And it referred to the dedication, which is to say that you initiate, when you dedicate something, you've initiated it for use. That's what dedication is. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 5, it says this. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Fascinating. If there's ever a picture of what is happening in today's world with respect to families, parents, and children, it's that. If you don't do the training, someone else will. That is the exact issue that is playing out in our backyard right now. If you do not, in effect, dedicate them by initiating, initiating them for use, which is what training a child is all about, if you do not do that, someone else will. In a generation's time of the difference between when I raised children to the current state of today, I said this to somebody not too long ago. I said the biggest difference I've noticed, it is up front and in your face, they want my child. That's the difference. It's not hidden anymore. If you don't do the training, someone else will. God's interest is in the children. delighted to have children in your house under your care. Abraham, I think we would all agree, is the father of the faith. If anybody embodied fathering, it's Abraham. He was to be a father of many nations. And in Genesis 18, 19, this is what was said to Abraham. For I know him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Part of the reason why Abraham was so valued and trusted by God was that he would command his children and his household after them that they would keep the way of the Lord. And this is not theory. 
I love what the very words that came next, to do. It's not just about having a happy, peaceful home. It's to do. To do what? Righteousness and justice. If there's anything that embodies the very heart of God, Psalm 89, righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. So Abraham was selected because he would train, he would command his children and his household after him that ultimately that they would do righteousness and justice. It's a very challenging way that that verse ended. And he said that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And I'm challenged by that because while it's very easy to be very utilitarian in the way we view children, there's an element of our children that is the vehicle by which we inherit the promises of God. Which is why in Psalm 127 it says, children are a heritage of the Lord. God loves children. just does. This has been something I just feel to grapple with because it is a very difficult issue in this time, in this locale. The, the pressures that you are facing individually and in your homes is quite acute. How you think about it is quite significant. And as someone who is one of the shepherds here, my and our interest is to support you in this as best as we know how. And I wanted to end in a sense by where we started and where I really want to go. I took the time to deconstruct a little bit of what is in play that you are facing. Some of you may have had some of these questions and thoughts about what is going on in this political arena in our current day. But let me, if you can put up that last, or where I started. And I wanted to read it again, because this is really the heart of where I, I want to go. But I wanted to lay a little bit of foundation of what's at stake. God showed his keen interest in families by forming the home before he made the church. He wants the same wonderful unity and that recognition of himself, which people expect to feel only in the church, to also be in the That is my prayer. I'm trusting God that this will be true. And yes, there are many practical things that we can do. And I want to explore that concept next week a little bit. But that's the heart of it. So I'm going to close. You've heard a lot of words. Maybe a new word. I don't know. But if you would, why don't you just stand?
I'm, the focus has been homes and families. If you would just close your eyes, and just even as I've been talking about homes and families, there may have been an issue rise up in your heart or a concern of yours about something in your home, in your family. So just hold that there, because I want to pray into that. Father God, you are for us. The very design, the very blueprint of man that the enemy is seeking to undermine. Homes, families, and the children as a heritage. And I thank you for that. Your will is clear in this matter of your love for your people. And for all of these issues that have come to mind, I speak into that right now in the name of Jesus. I say resolve. Resolve. Whatever is that situation that has disrupted, that is not right, we just say, Lord, let righteousness and justice be done in the name of Jesus. You resolve it, Lord. I ask in the name of Jesus that you intervene, that if strategy needs to be received, that you provide it, that you would bring clarity to the situation. It's not going to be unknown because if it's something that needs to be resolved, you are for that resolution. So I bless the very thoughts and the minds of your people right now that they can receive from you with grace because you are gracious. So we thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well done, Dwayne. All right, just a reminder, we do have uh, the second round of baptisms today. It's at 2 o'clock at the pool's house. How fitting. So uh, come and join and watch if you uh, would like to. And uh, we do have the ministry team that's going to be over here ready to pray for anybody if they'd like prayer for anything. And if you have been visiting today and you want to drop off that visitor card in the back on your way out, we would love that so we can connect with you. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Good morning, Free Life Church, and happy Sunday. We are glad you've joined us today. We would love to connect with you. Connection cards are a great way to let us know if you're new to us, any needs or comments you may have, or how we can simply connect with you. To submit a card, scan the QR code on the back of the seat or visit the Connect page on our website. If you are a first-time visitor, please stop by the Connection Corner in the lobby to receive your welcome bag. We look forward to meeting you. Join us this Saturday for the annual Back to School Fiesta. One Hope Ministries will be hosting this amazing outreach event from 11 to 2 p.m., giving away needed backpacks, school supplies, and the love of Jesus right here in our backyard. Bring your whole family and be the hands and feet of Jesus to these children in need. Come volunteer for face painting, prayer ministry, distributing food, handing out backpacks, and many more ways to serve. Sign up today. Here at Free Life, we believe in kingdom giving, and we invite you to give toward the work God is doing. 
the easiest way to give is by scanning the QR code here with your mobile device. Checks or cash may be dropped in the connect box at the back of the sanctuary. Thank you for your partnership with us. Stay informed of upcoming events and important announcements by signing up for text updates and our newsletter. Simply text free life to 41400 to sign up. Remember to learn about all of our upcoming events. Please see the events page on the website. Thanks for joining us today.